Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. You're all quiet this morning. All right, there you are. Hi. Hey, my name is Sarah. I am the kids pastor here at NCC and also have been to be married to Aaron, the lead pastor. And I'm so honored to get to share with you all this morning. But before I get into anything, I want to speak to some of you in the room and address something that sometimes as churches we can skip over. Um, you might be here this morning and you might have dragged yourself out of bed and forced yourself to come to church today because Mother's Day is maybe not the greatest holiday for you. Um, maybe that's because you lost your mom or you lost a child and so Mother's Day is a reminder of that loss that, it, that you're mourning. Um, maybe you're here and you're mourning a different kind of loss. You're mourning the loss of being a mother. Um, you've waited day after day, month after month, year after year, and every Mother's Day is just a reminder of something in your life that you dream of that, that's just kind of slipping away. Or Mother's Day might be hard for you because your relationship with your mom is not the best. Maybe she wasn't the example or the kind person or mother that you hoped or needed her to be. Um, but regardless of why you're hurting this morning, I don't want to move on today without acknowledging those of you who are hurting in the room because it's real. And although Mother's Day is a celebration for a lot of us, for a lot of us too, it's just a hard day. And so if you're hurting today and you're in one of those situations or another one, regardless, I just want you to know you're not forgotten. You're not overlooked. Um, God does not ignore your pain. It's as real to him as it is to you. And I just want to encourage you that no matter what you're facing, God's not afraid of your feelings. Um, and anything that you're afraid of, anything you're facing, um, it doesn't diminish his goodness to you. Um, and so I just want to encourage you and let you know you're not alone and, and we see you and we hear you. And so I just want to pray over you if you give me a chance. And those, the rest of you in the room, join with me. Jesus, thank you for this, this day where we get to celebrate an incredible group of people in our lives. But some of us, Lord, it's just, it's hard. And God, I pray for people listening or watching later online. I pray for those in this room this morning. And they're just hurting. And you said repeatedly in your word that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you are close by when we are in pain. And regardless of why we're facing what we're facing, you are with us. And God, I pray this morning that above all, every single one of us would sense your presence in our lives. God, that we would not try to push you away, but we would try to stay connected to you in the middle of our pain, that even when we can't understand, we would continue to keep our focus on you. We love you and we ask you to open our hearts and minds to hear from you today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, I want to share a little bit about myself for some of you who might not know me very well. Um, I'm a really open, pretty personal person, so I'm going to share a lot of personal stories today, so I hope that's okay. Um, I am the middle of five blonde girls. That's how I grew up. There's us rocking the 80s before it was cool. You can guess which one I am. And um, everyone apologized to my dad everywhere that we went, and I didn't know why until I was older. Um, but he got tons of grandsons out of it, so don't feel too bad for him. My parents were pastors until I was 11. Um, at that point, my, my dad quit ministry, and my mom had actually gone back to school with five kids. Yes, she's a superwoman, and got a bachelor's degree in nursing and became a nurse and hospital administrator. So the church and hospitals are very comfortable places for me, which I realize is not totally normal. Uh, I can feel just as at home in a hospital as, as I do in my own living room. Um, I graduated from high school, 
I'm not going to tell you when. And I moved from Illinois down to Texas to go to Southwestern Assemblies of God University, about an hour away from here. And I met this handsome fellow my first weekend. We became pretty good friends pretty quickly. And this is a circa 1997. That's my baby sister that absolutely adores him. That was her getting to know him. And uh, we got married between the year after this. We got married between our sophomore and junior years of college at the ripe old ages of 19 and 20. Had no idea what we were doing. And uh, decided we knew we wanted to have kids, and we knew we wanted to have lots of kids. And we pretty much knew we wanted to have kids right away. So um, we did, and God has been faithful to us. We were foster parents and are really passionate about foster parenting and adoption. And this is our crazy group of family. We have eight children, four through the miracle of adoption, and four biologically, and I've forced some of them to sit on the front row up here with me <laughs> today, and they're very happy about that. I love my family. They are amazing, and they keep, keep me on my toes. Um, and so today, we're going to talk about something that's really close to my heart, and it's redefining motherhood redefining motherhood. Now, those of you in the room who are not mothers, so whether you're a student or an aunt, uncle, a dad, I am, I'm asking you not to check out on me, okay? Because what I didn't tell you is my undergraduate degree is in secondary English education. So I'm a teacher at heart. And I want to make sure everybody in the room learns something today. So if you will stay with me, I promise God's going to seek something to each and every one of us this morning. Stay with me? Yeah? You in? I told, I told first service, I'll make this interactive. I feel like you guys are getting too quiet. I have no boundaries here. So um, we are going to talk about redefining, okay? And I don't know if you've ever done this, but I have faced multiple times in my life where I thought for sure something was one way and either quickly or not so quickly discovered, nah, it's quite different than I originally thought. Yeah? You've been through this? This happened to me pretty quickly into my motherhood journey, Whenever our first son, Josiah, was born a month before he was due. Now, to some people, that's not a big deal, but I'm a planner, and I had done my research, okay? And so I told you, my mom had five kids, and at this point in time, two of my sisters had had kids, and they all had the exact same story, okay? They all didn't go into labor until like two weeks after their due date. So I had my plan down. Uh, Josiah was due in September. I was going to start my classes because, yes, I was still going to college full-time in August, start my job, and then he was going to be due just in time for me to kind of squeeze him in between my papers that were due for the fall. So imagine my surprise when in August, a month and a day before he's due, this doctor tells me that my water is broken, and then the next day he's born via emergency C-section against every single birth plan thing that I had written out for the physician. And not only is my doctor on vacation, my very first doctor, my very first baby, and he is somewhere in the Bahamas, and I'm stuck with some random physician who is on call, but I develop a spinal headache, so I can't walk for two weeks. We don't own a crib yet. We don't own a car seat yet. I don't have clothes. I have nothing. So I had this beautiful picture of what bringing my first baby home was going to look like, and it turned out quite differently. Have you had this happen to you before? Maybe, maybe not so dramatic. Maybe it was. Maybe you're like me. Um, but we go through this process of redefining in our lives a lot. And we do this when we come to faith. A lot of us, for the very first time, from the beginning of our faith journey, we come to God because 
our marriage is a mess or our kids are falling apart or we just are really unhappy and feel meaningless in our life. So we come to God, we walk up to this altar, you know, we pray a prayer and say, okay, Jesus, here's my life, it's a mess. And we walk out and the next day we wake up to a life that looks exactly the same as it did the day before. And we're like, what? I I thought everything was gonna be different, Jesus. But Jesus has this habit of redefining what we think we know about life and about hope and about meaning. And so today I want us to focus in and look at how that applies to motherhood. All right. And and we're going to focus in on Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. So if you have a Bible or you have your phone, you can go ahead and follow along because we are passionate about engaging with the Word of God here at NCC. If you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles under the seats all over the place. Grab a hold of one of those Bibles and you can turn to page 552. And I'm going to read with you all. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. These two verses, there is so much powerful teaching in here today, but I just want us to kind of hone in on this message. Paul is speaking and writing to the the church in Rome, and he's imploring them to step into this transformation, this redefinition process that God does in our lives. And he says, hey, first, you've got to surrender your daily lives. When it says you're you lay your bodies down as a living sacrifice. Bodies is a symbol for our daily activities, what we do actively. And so he's saying the first thing you've got to do is you've got to bring God your day-to-day, your life, okay? And you've got to surrender it. Then, second, you've got to stop conforming to what was. So in this, in this step, we've, we've laid everything down, we've opened our hands and surrendered, and then God says, I want you to turn actively, intentionally, and I want you to change your actions to model them after my word. And this is completely by faith because we don't yet completely understand why we have to change, but we know we've let go and we're intentionally turning our actions to match that decision. And then third, we allow God to transform us. It says, be changed from the inside out, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And and this is really hard and this is why, because transformation isn't something we do to ourselves. It's something we allow God to do inside of us. It's this way that we open up our lives and allow God to continue moving in us. One version says it like this. It says, keep letting yourselves be transformed. This ongoing process of allowing God to redefine what we think we know about our life and about our expectations. So what in the world does this have to do with being a mom? Well, about six years ago, I was facing a little bit of a personal crisis. Um, I shared that my parents were pastors, but our home was very pretty dysfunctional. And I had reached this point in my life about six years ago where I kept hitting this wall. And it took me a while to figure out what it was, but I knew every night when I laid my head on my pillow, I felt like a complete failure as a mother. And it kept me up at night. And then during the day, I was hearing my own thoughts just beating myself up about things I should be doing or shouldn't be doing and what a good mother would and wouldn't do. 
And I, I couldn't fix it on my own. So I did what I have learned over the years to do. I brought in a pro, highly recommend it. I went to a counselor and I said, here's all of my stuff. Can you please help me figure out what in the world I need to do because I don't want to screw up my kids? And she said, yeah, absolutely. Here's what you're going to do. I'm giving you an assignment. I want you to go away and for a month, I want you to write down a list of everything you think a good mother does or is. And she said, I don't care how stupid or silly you think some of this is. If it comes to your mind, I want you to write it down. And I'm an excellent student. So I did exactly what she told me to do. I had a phone and I would take notes all day long. And I mean, some of my long list started to pile up and some of them seemed absolutely ridiculous. But when I met back with her and continued meeting with her, she helped me kind of dig out some untruths that had taken root in my life and were really, really affecting my day-to-day -day life. And lest you think I'm a little bit crazy, I am not alone, and I know for a fact I'm not. Um, because the U.S. Census says that in 2014, there were about 43.5 million mothers in the U.S., that's a lot of moms, between the ages of 15 and 50. Okay, and a Pew Research study said 48% of millennials, where my millennial mama's at, do you know you're a millennial? You're the young ones. 57% uh, of Gen Xers, 80s kids, and 59% of baby boomer moms all said they were not doing a good job as a parent. So in case you stink at math, as I do, that makes about 18.7 million mothers who go to bed each night feeling like a failure, like they're missing it. So we obviously have some redefining to do. So today, I want to present just five, five of my long, long list, but five ways that I would like us to look at redefining motherhood, all right? We'll start with this one. I used to think a good mother keeps her kids busy in lots of activities, and now I know a good mother helps her kids develop their individual gifts and talents. Now, I'll put a little bit of perspective with this. As a teenager, I was involved in everything at my school. I was in every choir, honors choir, madrigal choir, jazz choir. I competed at solo and ensemble. I was in every spring musical and every fall play. I was in the pom-poms, which is a drill team, I think, in Texas, which basically means you dance at every basketball and football game. So I was usually at the school by about 5.30 to 6 a.m., and I typically didn't leave till the evening. And if I wasn't singing or dancing or rehearsing, I was a nanny for my second family, and I spent every weekend, vacation, all of summer with them. I was the only 16-year-old I knew that lived by a planner. Like, I had the old-school little planner with the little book, and I mean, I had to. I had to keep track of everything going on in my crazy life. So I was convinced that one day when I was a mom, I was going to be the president of the choir boosters, and I was going to be at every single basketball and football game, and I was going to be involved in every single activity. So as soon as Josiah was old enough, we signed him up for t-ball. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Josiah and the kind of kid that he was. Well, yeah, my family's laughing because they know what I'm about to say. When Josiah was six months old, he would sit in a room for an hour, hour and a half, by himself with a toy, perfectly quiet and content. Didn't think this was weird till my friend brought her baby over. And I was like, man, Josiah's really easy. Whenever Josiah was four, okay, back in the heyday, he would go to our old school PC, turn it on, put in his little preschool disc, get it all started up, which these days isn't as difficult, but it was pretty complicated back then. In the first grade, Josiah missed seven words on a spelling test, not because he didn't know the words, but because he was watching Finding Nemo in his head. He walked me through the scene that he was watching in his head at the time. 
The next year, he fell asleep at school because he'd been up all night reading Chronicles of Narnia under the covers, which is a sixth grade reading level. So this kid playing outside for him meant reading a book and climbing a tree. That was the extent. So you can imagine how T-Ball went. He spent the bulk of the time drawing new vocabulary words in the sand in the outfield, which honestly, as an English teacher, I was kind of proud of. So then we tried soccer and we tried cross country. Athletics were not his thing, okay? And this took me a while to figure out that Josiah had a different set of gifts and talents that needed to be nurtured a different way. Now, physical activity is important for all kids, okay? I'm not saying sports are bad. But what I am saying is each of our kids is wired differently and needs different things and needs us to come alongside of them differently. And I was trying to squish Josiah into a little cookie cutter that he just did not fit into. And I would absolutely love to tell you that I figured this out when he was young and I got over it, but the truth of the matter is, even when he was in high school, he graduated last year, I would feel myself like this need to push him to be involved in things that he had no passion about. He wasn't interested. And it wasn't because I thought something was wrong with him. It's because I'd set this unrealistic standard for myself as a parent and I was trying to hold myself to it. But each of our kids is individual and deserves their individual gifts and talents to be equipped in their own way. So a good mother helps her kids develop their individual gifts and talents. Number two, I used to think a good mother keeps everything together and loves every single minute of her kids' lives. And now I know a good mother accepts failure, apologizes for mistakes, and allows herself to feel all of the feelings. So when I, when my kids were young, somebody had given me a copy of The Strong-Willed Child by Dr. Dobson. Does anyone own that book? I know it's an older one, okay? And I will never forget my mother-in-law saying, you're going to need that. Erin was extremely strong-willed. And I had no idea what she meant, but I basically caught the gist that eventually, if we were going to have a big family, we were going to end up with one kid who was like Erin. And boy, did we. Micah, from the moment he was born, was just like Aaron, I have a little picture. He's on the right. So he had this curly hair and this huge smile. He laughed all the time. He had this charisma. Everybody just loved him. And as soon as he could walk, he wanted to find the line so he could cross over it and just see what happens. Whenever he was three, he brought me back to his bedroom to show me the beautiful picture he'd drawn on his bedroom wall. When he was four, he smacked his sister over the head with a toy. And I said, did you just hit her? Yeah. Um, did you do it on purpose? Yeah, I did. Okay, did you hit her hard? As hard as I could, Mom. I mean, he was brutally honest and had no problem with the fact that he was completely unruly. And I reached this point in toddlerhood where I was like, I can't do one more thing. I'm going to die. And I I call my mother-in-law, tears running down my face. You told me we were going to get one like him, and I don't know what to do. I'm, like, totally at the end of my rope. I can't spank him one more time. Like, nothing matters. And in her calm, patient way, she said, Sarah, hang in there. I promise if you stay consistent, you're going to make it. Just keep doing what you're doing. You are directing his will for the rest of his life, and eventually you're going to see the fruit of it. Again, love to tell you from that moment on, I was a changed woman, but it was hard. Toddlerhood was more tears for me than for my toddlers. Um, But 
when Micah was about 10 years old, he came home from school one day and said, hey, Mom, I think I'm going to send my, uh, sell my Nintendo DS so I can buy an Xbox. And I said, what do you mean you're going to? He's like, I'm gonna, I have it listed on eBay. On eBay? You know how to use eBay? He did know how to use eBay. And with a little bit of assistance from my husband, within a week, he had both transactions complete. And I was like, who is this kid? Like, he's driven, he's gifted, he's individual. Like, I don't want to get in his way. And I just felt Jesus say, remember? Remember all those years of toddlerhood when you thought you were going to pull your hair out? Look at him now. Like, he's got a strong will, and it's directed. And this is the thing about moms is sometimes we feel like we're supposed to love all of this stuff. But the truth is we're all going to go through really hard times, seasons that we would never want to relive. And that's not a bad thing. It's a human thing. It's just part of being a human being. And we're going to blow it sometimes. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to yell and we're going to scream and we're going to do all the things the parenting books tell us not to do. And Here's what this taught me is that every season isn't summer, but every season is valuable. Because my mentor, she has this way of saying, like, we think that the summer seasons, the great, happy, warm seasons of our life are somehow a reward from God, and therefore winter is a punishment. In other words, when we go through cold, dark times, we think, oh, God's punishing us for something. And that's not true. It's not. The Bible tells us that there is a time and a season for everything. Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and to die, a time to plant and to uproot. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. None of us is perfect, okay? All of us are going to go through really, really hard times, but it's okay and it's really, really important as moms that we learn to accept our failures in our dark times so that our kids can one day do the same thing. It's really, really important that we learn to apologize when we blow it so our kids can follow our example. Um, Aaron says this all the time, we can say what we want, but we reproduce who we are. If you see something in your kids you don't like, take a look in the mirror. I guarantee you'll find it. So it's really important that we set the example by allowing ourselves to accept failure, apologize for mistakes, and to feel all of the feelings. Number three, a good mother, I used to think, always had the right words to say, and now I know a good mother realizes her presence in pain is something infinitely more powerful than words. I grew up watching the Brady Bunch. Anybody? I, I don't know if it's because they had a huge family, and I was like, that family actually has more kids than my family does. Or because Carol Brady had a female mullet. What was going on with hair with women in the 70s? But I loved her because she always seemed to just have the right thing to say. And then when I was a little older, I moved on to The Cosby Show, and boy, did Claire Huxtable, man, she had it together. She was snappy, and she knew how to put cliff in his place and how to get everything resolved. And this, in my little brain, communicated that moms should always have the correct little phrase and the right little word board to put on the wall so that our kids go, oh my gosh, I understand everything about life now. But the truth of the matter is, there are times where just words aren't enough. And a couple years ago, I got slapped in the face with this reality. Um, we were in the middle of, a, of adopting. We actually had just been a couple months in. Everything was going really well. And our son, Gabriel, was seven at the time. I'm sharing this with his permission. 
And he came home from school and was just in a mood, like nothing was helping, no snack, no game. And so I did everything the parenting book said, and I eventually just kept him close to me. I was cleaning my bathroom, and he was in there reading a book. And out of nowhere, he says, I just miss my mom. And I knew he wasn't talking about me. How do you say anything to a seven-year-old who's facing something they should never, ever have to face like that? You don't. I knew immediately there were not any words to try to make him feel better. So I got on the floor, and I put my arms around him, and we cried together for a while, and we let it be. And I think so many times as humans, we feel this need to fill space with words. We call them awkward moments. We call it small talk. We go to funerals and try to think up some kosher phrase to say to someone as if it somehow makes them feel better when they're facing a loss. And it's not something that's just like a problem in our current age. This happened way back in the Bible. There's a story about a man named Job who loses everything. His kids are tragically killed. He loses all of his possessions, his health. And his friends come along, and what do they try to do to make him feel better? They talk him to death. They try to logic their way through why he's going through what he's going through, as if somehow that's going to help. And we do this often. We feel the need to act instead of just being there. So I think we need to relearn the power of presence, of just being present with people, not doing, not saying. We need to relearn the power of being with instead of talking to. Sometimes people just need us close, especially as moms. Number four, a good mother, I used to think, keeps her kids happy. Now I know a good mother allows her children to experience pleasure and pain. One of my favorite books that talks a lot about this is Boundaries with Kids. I absolutely love this book, and I have a copy to give away to whoever wants it first. Whoever gets up here, there you go, your. <laughs> Woo! You're going to regret that decision later, I promise. Start enforcing some of that book. No, I'm just playing. So I love Boundaries with Kids. If any of you have kids in your life, whether you're a parent or a teacher or anything, I highly recommend this book because it helps us to recognize that there are certain laws and rules that we all operate within all of the time as human beings, and kids need to learn them. And one of them is the law of sowing and reaping. And the law of sowing and reaping teaches us that actions have consequences. Someone's going to bear them, okay? All of our actions have consequences, good or bad. And as adults, our job is to not bail kids out of their consequences of their actions. Easier said than done. The other thing in this book that I, I think is interesting is the law of responsibility. And it teaches us that we are responsible to, not for each other. So practically, this means that kids and all people are responsible for ourselves, our own struggles, our emotions, our attitudes, and behaviors. So I'm going to just let you off the hook this morning. You're not responsible for anybody else's happiness, especially your kids. And when you take that responsibility away from your child, when they don't own their own happiness, you're not helping them. You're hurting them. And when you get in the way of your child actually feeling the consequences of their decision, you're not protecting them. You're setting them up for more pain in the future. 
because truth and reality, you can't argue with. They will come down the road eventually. And when you get in between your kid and the truth and the reality of the decisions that they make, eventually they're going to find out and it's going to hurt a lot more. Now, it doesn't mean that whenever your kid messes up that you're allowed to just go, suck it up. It sucks to be you. It's going to teach you something. Pat him on the back. It, it means that here's your kid. Here's reality. Here's in between. You stand alongside. Okay? We walk with our kids. We help them through their decisions, but we don't get in the way of them receiving the consequences, good or bad, for their actions. A good mother allows her children to experience pleasure and pain. And last one. I used to think a good mother is independent and doesn't ask for help. You're going to laugh at this one, I know. A good mother now, I realize, recognizes that she and her kids are better when they live life in community. Now, if you do not know me, I am a complete klutz. If you know me well, you already know this about me. I hurt myself doing everyday things all the time. I've broken my foot. I've torn ligaments in my foot. I've torn muscles. I've broken my wrist. I have... Um, sprained my ankle more times than I can count. I'm constantly injuring myself and never doing anything cool, mind you, always doing normal things. So not a big surprise when I break my foot and tear the ligaments in my foot carrying in a box of diapers when Angela's seven months old. Yeah. So here it's July. Angela's seven months old. The boys are toddlers. Aaron is a full-time youth pastor. I'm a part-time worship pastor at the church. And when the doctor looks at me and says, well, you're going to be in a cast for six weeks. You can't put any weight on your foot. I literally laughed. I have a seven-month-old. She doesn't walk yet. What am I supposed to do? But I am determined to handle this on my own. So the next week, Aaron leaves for youth camp. He's gone for the week. My mother, my sisters have offered to come help. No, 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 I've got it all together. And uh, I'm trying to make the kids lunch. So we live in this house with a galley kitchen. If you've had a galley kitchen, there's two sides, right? This side has the sink in the counter, and this side has the stove in the counter. And I fill the pot for macaroni and cheese, and then I'm like, how am I going to get it over there, my crutches? I set it on the floor and crawled and pushed it over to the thing. I never called for help. It gets worse. My laundry room was in the basement of my house. How do I get dirty laundry down there and clean laundry up with crutches and a baby? I don't. I just can't do laundry. So that's Sunday. I get home after church. I've led worship for 45 minutes because, again, I'm crazy. And I come home to a house full of people. And to my horror, they're going through my laundry. They're cleaning my house. They're cleaning my bathroom. And I should be throwing my hands in the air, thank you, Jesus, doing a one-legged happy dance. But I am freaking out because all I can think of is, they're going to think I'm the most terrible mother in the entire world. I can't even do my kids' laundry. And they're going to go tell people what a terrible housekeeper I am. Completely missed the point. I had put independence up in my mind as this idol that I needed to attain, and I did not recognize my need for help. I needed community. I was not meant to live my life and raise my kids alone, and God knew this. I love, he says this in uh, Psalm 68, 6. He sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. That's where I was. And women, let me just talk to you for a second. We can be the worst at this. Because we're great at having friends, 
okay? But when it comes time for us to actually let people into our lives, to let our guard down a little bit and actually share our weaknesses and our struggles, we compare, we deflect, we gossip, we hide. And we need a revival of women who actually care more about each other instead of living for each other. We need a group of women who will stop putting up all of the walls and actually let people in, where we'll care more about each other than we care about our reputations. That's what we need. We need women who will actually be there for each other. And if you're here and you consider yourself a follower of Christ, let me just tell you, living as an active part of the body of Christ is not an option for Christians. It's a requirement. The Bible is extremely clear about this. We cannot do this on our own. I'm just going to throw out a couple of scriptures for you. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. And we urge you, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. We are created to live in community. And you and your kids, you're better off when you live life in community. Independence is not something any of us are designed for in that way. We need to be able to allow people into our lives. So let me close with a couple of thoughts. Jesus wants to help us redefine. And as I was praying for you guys this week and as I was researching this message and just going over everything God was speaking to me, I just... I couldn't shake this idea that some of us walk through life and we really think that we know better than God. And we feel so disappointed when he doesn't fulfill our expectations. And he is trying to help us to redefine love, to redefine life, to redefine what we think we know about hope and about marriage and about truth, about everything in our lives, if we would just allow him to. So I want to pray for us this morning. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes. You might be here today and you might be connecting with the first part of that Romans passage that's saying, hey, you got to surrender. And maybe you have asked God for help, but you have never actually laid your life down. And the Bible tells us clearly, every single one of us has sinned. Every one of us is a disaster. And we cannot fix ourselves on our own. So God sent his son to come and take the punishment of our sins so that we could have a fixed relationship with him. And if you need that today, if you need to surrender and actually start letting God redefine your life, I wanna ask you to come forward here in a little bit when our prayer team comes up and let someone pray with you because you can't walk out of here and try to do it on your own. You need a community. And if you're here today and you're disconnected, you just haven't allowed people into your life. Or this morning, God's just challenging you to redefine some things that you thought that you knew and you've been holding God accountable to your definition when he has something infinitely better in mind. 